Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 9th of March 2022. News. CF Fertilisers UK. Tories refuse to reveal taxpayer bailout bill to fertiliser firm. This article is by Billy Riggs. The UK government has refused to reveal how much of taxpayers' money has been given to a fertiliser firm whose US parent corporation is worth around £9 billion. CF Fertilisers UK, which has plants in Cheshire and Teesside, was bailed out by the government after a rise in gas prices last September made fertiliser production uneconomical. Its parent firm in America, CF Industries, recently announced that its net earnings for 2021 amounted to £684 million. The announcement by the US firm of tens of millions of pounds in profit comes as Scots farmers point out that the rising cost of fertiliser is one of the reasons for rocketing food prices, leaving people struggling to afford the basics. CF Fertilisers is the UK's sole primary manufacturer of products, including ammonium nitrate fertiliser, according to the Chemical Industries Association. CF Fertilisers also produces around 60% of the UK's industrial carbon dioxide, CO2, as a by-product of fertiliser manufacture. Food suppliers need carbon dioxide for meat production, the packaging of fresh foods, cooling nuclear reactors and making dry ice to keep goods cool for transportation. The gas is also used in the process of stunning pigs and poultry for slaughter. High gas prices made it less profitable for CF fertilisers to operate its sites in Teesside and Cheshire and both were closed briefly until the government stepped in last September. There were fears that a rise in the price of CO2 would have an impact on food prices and supply chains. The emergency deal allowed CF Fertilisers to reopen its two plants. Announcing the bailout, Environment Secretary George Eustace said that without the temporary agreement, there would have been food supplies problems. When asked about the deal, he added, it's going to be into many millions possibly the tens of millions, but it's to underpin some of the fixed costs. In January, it was reported that CF Fertilisers paid out a £4.5 million dividend to its US parent group, CF Industries, just weeks before it accepted the British taxpayer-funded subsidy. Last month, CF Industries reported that its net earnings for 2021 was £684 million, The CF Industries team delivered outstanding results in 2021 as strong global nitrogen demand, lower global operating rates and favourable energy spreads drove company record free cash generation, said Tony Will, President and Chief Executive Officer 
of CF Industries Holdings. He added, we expect global nitrogen fundamentals to remain positive, underpinned by the need to replenish global grain stocks, increased economic activity and global energy dynamics. We are well positioned to continue to drive strong cash generation, enabling us to invest in our clean energy initiatives, return substantial capital to shareholders and achieve our goal of $3 billion of gross debt by 2023. In February, the UK government announced a new agreement to ensure supplies of CO2, but ministers did not disclose any further details. A statement said, The deal will enable CF Fertilisers Billingham plant to continue to operate while global gas prices remain high. It means key sectors, including food processing and nuclear power, are insured supplies of CO2. The government welcomes industry's agreement, which is in the best interests of business. In September 2021, the government provided limited financial support for CF fertilisers operating costs for three weeks. Industry then came out to an agreement in October without taxpayer support to ensure CF fertilisers on Teesside could continue to operate for three months. The ferret asked the UK government to disclose how much of taxpayers' money has been given to CF fertilisers, but it declined to comment. CF fertilisers and CF industries did not reply to our requests for a comment. Mary Goujon, the Scottish Government's Rural Affairs Secretary, said, The Scottish Government recognises the importance of domestic fertiliser production to Scotland's farming and food production industry, which is why I have continually raised the issue of ensuring continued supply to the UK Government. We are pleased that since then an agreement has been reached with the CO2 industry so that the CF fertilisers plant can remain open for now. However, we continue to press for a long-term solution. This article is by Billy Briggs. Recorded from the Herald on the 9th of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Celtic could offer a Scott Brown pathway to return to club after Aberdeen exit, by Ewan Payton. Scott Brown could be in line for a return to Celtic after his departure from Aberdeen, according to a report. The former hoop skipper left the Dons on Tuesday after nine months into a two-year contract. The 36-year-old quit the Pataudry outfit as he aims to take the next steps in his coaching career. The ex-Scotland hero has not officially hung up the boots, but it remains to be seen whether he will take to the field as a player again. And according to the Scottish Sun, Celtic would be willing to create a pathway for Bruni to develop his coaching skills. The report states that Ange Postacoglu already has three first-team coaches on the Parkhead setup in the shape of John Kennedy, Stephen McManus and Gavin Strachan. So the opening could be within the academy and B-team. The club legend was in the running to land a St Mirren job just two weeks ago, so he may prefer to focus his efforts at first-team level. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 9th of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Scotland versus Ukraine, World Cup playoff tie officially postponed as SFA updates fans, by Ewan Payton. Scotland's World Cup playoff match with Ukraine has officially been postponed. The teams were due to lock horns at the semi-final match at Hampden on March 24th. However, given the current situation in Ukraine, the game has been postponed until June by the FIFA organising committee. The Scottish FA say they support the decision as they reiterated their message of solidarity to the Ukrainian Association of Football.
UEFA will now amend the fixture schedule, including any displaced UEFA Nations League fixtures. With Scotland's World Cup playoff games now put back, the SFA are seeking to organise a replacement fixture on March 24th. Wales vs Austria will go ahead as intended on that date, with the winners of that tie eventually playing either Scotland or Ukraine for a spot in the World Cup. But the SFA have also confirmed that the losers of Wales vs Austria will play Scotland in a friendly on March 29th. Ian Maxwell, Scottish FA Chief Executive, in light of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, it is the correct decision by FIFA to postpone our playoff, as requested by the Ukrainian Association of Football. The importance and significance of football is greatly diminished in a time of war, and our thoughts are with those Ukrainian civilians affected by the conflict. That article was by Ewan Payton. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 9th of March 2022, Arts and Entertainments. The return of the festival, Scots Book Events, Make a Post-Covid Restrictions Comeback, by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Scotland's book festivals are making a comeback to their old live format after being scaled back because of the Covid pandemic last year. The Borders Book Festival is planning to make its return to its traditional date and venue for the first time in three years. Organisers hope to go back to the Harmony Garden in Melrose from 16 to 19 June and hope to return to pre-pandemic bliss. Last year the event was held at Abbotsford House in November, having effectively been cancelled the previous year. Wigton Book Festival will also be making a return in September and is said to be worth more than £4 million to the economy. Research which included high-profile events such as the Bloody Scotland Crime Writing Festival in Stirling, the Edinburgh International Book Festival, I Write in Glasgow found that Scotland's main literary events attracted an overall audience of more than 780,000 when they were last staged in full in 2019. They were worth more than £11.3 million to the economy. In 2020, the total audience dropped to 344,000, with 91% being online or digital. As the festivals worked to find new ways to reach audiences or were forced to cancel, but festivals are now looking to take advantage of the easing of COVID restrictions. Alistair Moffat, director of the Borders Book Festival, said they hope to be able to return to relative pre-pandemic bliss this summer. The full programme of more than 100 events will be announced next month, but some names have already been confirmed. Joanna Lumley, Andrew Marr, Julian Clary, Val McDermott, James Naughty will all be part of proceedings. A special show with Scottish impressionists Rory Bremner, Ronnie Ancona and Lewis MacLeod is also set to be staged. Mr Moffat said, We couldn't be more excited about a return to Harmony Garden this summer. Undoubtedly Abbotsford made a fabulous venue last November and was especially fitting for the 250th anniversary year of Sir Walter Scott's birth, but our hearts lie at Harmony Garden. To return there more than two years since the pandemic paused life as we knew it is a poignant cause for reflection and celebration. As well as dozens of events, the winner of this year's Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction will be announced at the festival. Last year's winner of the prestigious £25,000 prize prize was Hilary Mantel for The Mirror and the Light. Contenders in the long list include Colm Tobin, Nadifa Mohammed, Sebastian Fox, Sarah Winman, Andrew Gregg and Stacey Halls. This year, whilst all relevant COVID-19 measures will still be in place to ensure the safety and peace of mind of festival goers, 
We hope to be able to return to relative pre-pandemic bliss, spending long light days in a beautiful setting, surrounding ourselves with inspiring debates and exchanges of ideas, fuel mind and soul and enjoying the delights once more of the food and drink village to fuel, brackets just as importantly, close brackets, the body, said Mr Moffat. And this year the event aims to proclaim the power of a strong tale as part of the Year of Stories 2022. The initiative will spotlight, celebrate and promote the wealth of stories inspired by, written or created in Scotland. From icons of literature to local tales, Year of Stories encourages locals and visitors to experience a diversity of voices, take part in events and explore the places, people and cultures connected to all forms of our stories, past and present. In 2019, there were more than 2,500 events featuring 2,800 authors staged across the country by festivals as far afield as St Andrews, Nairn, Malig and the islands of Islay and Skye over the course of 12 months. More than 450 permanent and part-time jobs were created by Scottish Book Festivals in 2019 by Martin Williams. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 10th of March 2022. Ian Blackford could be set to quit as SNP Westminster leader by Andrew Learmouth, journalist. SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford has denied reports that he is set to quit as the party's Westminster leader. According to Political, the MP for Ross Sky and Lochaber has clashed with colleagues in the Commons and there are grumblings from others about his performance. The article claims senior MPs Alan Smith and Stuart MacDonald may be looking to take over. Though Smith said this claim was total garbage from people with too much time on their hands, one insider, quoted by Political, said Blackford can't be effed with the pressures and the travelling involved in his Highland constituency. However, Blackford himself branded the claims utter nonsense. He told The National, I have got a job to do leading the group, I am fully focused on doing so, and I intend to lead us through all the challenges we face and to stand by the side of the First Minister ready for the campaign ahead. I am relaxed about things. I have no intention of going anywhere. Asked if there was any truth in the claims, Blackford told the paper, none whatsoever. The SNP chief was criticised last month after he sparked a fear row over who would meet the cost of state pensions after a yes vote, suggesting it would be a legacy obligation for the UK. He told ITV Border that Scots who had paid UK national insurance had accumulated the right to a UK pension. This was in spite of the white paper and independence given to voters before the 2014 referendum, saying that existing pensioners, the responsibility for the payment of that pension, will transfer to the Scottish Government. He was also criticised by independent supporters this week when he suggested a future referendum may have to be delayed because of the crisis in Ukraine. Nicola Sturgeon yesterday insisted she still planned on having the vote next year. This article was written by Andrew Learmouth. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 10th of March, 2022. News. Stonehaven rail crash. Series of deadly management feelings revealed. By Martin Williams, senior news reporter. A series of deadly rail management failings have been blamed for the horror rail crash near Stonehaven, in which three people died and six were injured. Driver Brett McCulloch, 45, conductor Donald Dinney, 58, and passenger Christopher Stutchbury, 62, died when the 638 high-speed train Aberdeen to Glasgow Queen Street left the tracks after hitting a landslip in August 2020. 
A final report into the derailment has found that Network Rail, which runs the infrastructure, and railway managers were not properly prepared to deal with issues of heavy rain and had not adequately handled drainage issues that caused the landslip. The Train Drivers Union ASLIV said Alex Hines, Managing Director of Scotland Railway, a group of government and rail industry organisations, should resign, saying the crash findings were damning and must be a watershed moment for rail safety. Neil Davidson, partner at Digby Brown Solicitors, which acts for injured passengers and relatives of one of those who died, said it was the very definition of negligence. It should come as no surprise that many now hope further action will be taken against Network Rail, he said. Transport Secretary Grant Sharps said it would be a disservice to the men who died if lessons were not learned. The Rail Accident Investigation Branch, RAIB, said that the railway industry's risk assessments had clearly signalled that earthwork and drainage failure due to extreme rainfall was a significant threat to the safety of the railway, but they had not clearly identified potential areas of weakness in the existing operational mitigation measures. The RAIB found that the train derailed because it struck debris that had been washed out of a faulty drainage system constructed between 2011 and 2012 by failed outsourcing giant Carillion. Both Network Rail, which owns the infrastructure, and the designers of the drain were unaware that Carillion did not build it to specification and so were not able to safely accommodate the water flows that morning. Investigators found that the drainage works were not entered into Network Rail's infrastructure maintenance database, so it was never inspected or maintained after installation. After the drain was built, the landowner complained to Network Rail and Carillion that the land next to it was affected by surface water, but neither followed this up. In 2015, Network Rail acquired a computer tool, the Network Rail Weather Service, NRWS, to accurately capture weather data to help assess appropriateness of train speeds or service cancellations, but it was not properly configured and staff were not properly trained in how to use it. The RAIB's investigation also found that the route controllers, who were responsible for the operational management of Scotland Railway Network, had not been given the information, procedures or training that they needed to effectively manage complex situations of the type encountered on that morning. They found the control team was under severe workload pressure around the time of the crash due to the volume of weather-related events. But no additional staff were called in to help even though plans existed to help with such issues through the senior management gold command structure. The train had turned back due to another landslip when it hit the landslip at Carmont near Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire after heavy rain. It was travelling at 73 miles per hour, which was just below the normal permitted speed for that line. The driver was only four seconds from impact before the debris could be seen and the emergency braking was too late. The RAIB found that no instruction was given by route control or the signaller that the train should be run at a lower speed on its journeys between Carmont and Stonehaven during near-continuous heavy rain. Investigators say that at that time there was no written process that required any such precaution in these circumstances, so normal railway rules were applied to the train movement. They said that the management processes of Network Rail had not identified or addressed weaknesses in the way it dealt with the consequences of extreme rainfall events. The railway industry's own risk assessments had clearly signalled 
that earthworks and drainage failure due to extreme rainfall was a significant threat to safety. Despite an awareness of the risk, the REIB said Network Rio had not completed the implementation of additional control measures following previous events or clearly identified potential areas of weakness. Network Rio and REIB concerns were heightened by a landslip just outside the portal of a tunnel in Watford, Hertfordshire, in September 2016 that caused the derailment of a train. The investigators made 20 recommendations for the improvement of rail safety in the wake of the Stonehaven crash. Among them is a call for improved operational response to extreme rainfall events, exploiting the full capability of modern technology. Simon French, the Chief Inspector of Rail Accidents, said, Although railway safety in the UK has been steadily improving over recent decades, the tragedy at Carmount is a reminder of just how disruptive and potentially dangerous Britain's volatile weather can be. The railway industry needs to get even smarter about the way it counters this threat and to better exploit remarkable modern technology that enables the prediction and tracking of extreme weather events such as summer convective storms. There is also an urgent need for the railway to provide real-time decision-makers with the information, procedures and training they need to manage complex and widespread weather-related events across the rail network. It's important for all of us in the rail industry not to dismiss this truly harrowing accident as a one-off event. The railway industry needs to think through the implications of severe weather on its infrastructure, whilst also looking to the behaviour of trains should they derail after striking obstructions such as washouts and landslips. The refurbished high-speed train was designed before modern standards were brought in with the design features intended to minimise the damage to the train in case of collision or derailment. The REIB said that it was more likely than not that the outcome would have been better if the train had been compliant with modern crashworthiness standards. The investigators called for better management of civil engineering construction activities by Network Rail and its contractors and additional standards and guidance on the safe design of drainage systems. They said railway managers should address the obstacles to effective implementation of lessons learnt from the investigation of accidents and incidents and it said there needed to be better understanding of the additional risk associated with operations of older trains. Mr French added, Railways need to operate safely and reliably in most weather conditions. If they are not able to achieve this, potential passengers will be forced onto the roads, which are undoubtedly much more dangerous in bad weather conditions. So there's a balance to be struck and technology can help it to get this balance right. Modern weather forecasting and monitoring systems can spot the truly exceptional events before they occur and as they happen, so allowing railway operators to implement precautionary measures when it's prudent to do so. This would benefit the safety of the line by restricting train speeds or suspending operations when necessary, while reducing the need for imposing blanket speed restrictions over areas that are not at significant risk. This investigation highlights the risks of uncontrolled changes to the railway infrastructure during construction. It is so sad that a project that was designed for the protection of the travelling public became unsuitable for its intended use and posed a hazard to trains because of such uncontrolled changes to the design. When anything is built in difficult conditions, such as on the side of a steeply sloped cutting, changes will often be needed for practical reasons. Although such changes are normal and can be beneficial in terms of save time and cost, they need to be made with care. In each case, the original designer needs to understand the change that's proposed 
and review the implications of a change that may appear inconsequential to the team on site. I hope this example will resonate throughout the UK's construction industry. As the General Secretary McQuillan said, this report is damning and makes for difficult reading, not at least for the families of those who died and were injured. The failures identified in this report are so bad that we believe this must be a watershed moment in the way we ensure the safety of passengers and staff on our railway network. Network Rail and Abellio, ScotRail, failed the passengers and staff who were on the train that crashed at Carmount and must be held to account. This should start with Alex Hines, given his involvement with Network Rail and Abellio ScotRail. His position is untenable and he must resign with immediate effect. Andrew Haynes, Network Rail Chief Executive, said, This report makes clear that there are fundamental lessons to be learnt by Network Rail and the wider industry. As well as expressing our deep sorrow and regret at the loss of the lives of Christopher Stutchbury, Donald Dinney and Brett McCullough, it's important that we acknowledge it should not have taken this tragic accident to highlight those lessons. We must do better and we are utterly committed to that. In the 18 months since the accident, we have inspected similar locations and drainage systems across the length and breadth of the country, and the added insight the RAIB has provided today will help us in our efforts. We also commissioned two independent task forces led by world-class experts to help us better understand extreme rainfall events, and how to better manage our cuttings, embankments and the drainage systems. We have invested tens of millions of pounds towards improving the general resilience of our railway and how we predict and respond to such events. But this remains a multi-generational challenge and there is still much to do. Ian McConnell, Scott Rail Chief Operating Officer, said, The majority of the REIB recommendations relate to other parties, but Scott Rail will play its part in fully ensuring that safety lessons are learned. We are working closely with Network Rail and the wider industry to do everything possible to reduce the risk of something like this ever happening again. The way the industry responds to extreme weather incidents has already changed following the events of the 12th of August 2020, and a number of the report's recommendations have already been implemented. A joint investigation involving the Office of Rail and Road Regulator, Police Scotland and British Transport Police, is expected to hand over a final report to the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service in the coming months. This article is written by Martin Williams. Reported from the Herald on the 10th of March 2022, from the sports section, Ali McCoy's lifts lid on Luca Modric, missed Rangers transfer opportunity by Ewan Payton. Rangers scouted global superstar Luca Modric in the early stages of his career, Ali McCoy has revealed. The midfielder has gone on to become one of the best midfielders of his generation, playing for Tottenham before earning a move to Real Madrid a decade ago. The Croatian legend was outstanding during Wednesday night's triumph for Los Blancos over PSG as the La Liga giants came from a 2-0 down in a tie to progress. At the time Rangers were looking at the star, he was playing at Dynamo Zagreb in his homeland. Walter Smith had sent McCoyst on a trip to scout Vedran Kurluka, who would end up at Spurs like Modric. As you'd expect, Modric was the standout player to report on from the trip. A super alley urged Rangers to push through a deal if financially possible. His valuation at the time was just £3.5 million. McCoy's told TalkSport's breakfast show, Walter Smith sent me over to Dynamo Zagreb to look at the right back who went on to Spurs as well, Vedran Korluka. 
He phoned me after the game and said, what do you think? And I said, I'll tell you, Gaffer, they've got a wee boy in the middle of the park. He's absolutely outrageous. See how much money we've got. I think we could have got him for £3.5 million, but we didn't have the money. Celtic Daft Brazil replied, thank God you didn't. McCoy added, ah wow, we didn't have the money. He asked how much, and I said £3.5 and he said we can't afford it. What a football player. He's been great to watch. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 10th of March 2022, from the sports section, Stephen Gerrard's anti-racism stance praised by ex-Premier League player by Ewan Payton. Stephen Gerrard's handling of the Glen Kamara racism incident versus Slavid Prague left former Premier League footballer Anton Ferdinand taken aback. Rangers ace Kamara was disgustingly called a monkey by Andrzej Kudela almost one year ago when Slavia defeated the Ibrox side in the Europa League. The Czech Republic international was handed the minimum UEFA ban of 10 games for the offence, as he missed the entirety of Euro 2020 as a result. Gerrard stood by his player throughout the ordeal, and that's something Ferdinand feels could break the mould among managers and dealing with such horrible situations. Ferdinand told the Include Summit in Birmingham, I've never seen a manager protect a player when it comes to racism the way I've seen Stephen Gerrard do. You're talking about that generation and you've got people like Stephen Gerrard who's managing now and producing that level of commitment and support on a topic that is hard to speak about, especially as a white man. I think Frank Lampard would do the same. I think Wayne Rooney would do the same. I think that's because they're moving with the times. They're educating themselves and they understood that they manage people and they're not just football coaches. They manage human beings. Ferdinand himself had to deal with racist abuse on the pitch. John Terry was handed a four-game ban and fined 220,000 for the language he directed towards a defender in a game between Chelsea and QPR. He explained that the victim can often face harsher consequences when it comes to discrimination. He added, when it comes to racism, the victim is always the one who is made to feel like the perpetrator. I played 11 years in the Premier League prior to the Terry incident. I played 13 times in the Premier League after the incident, then never played again. I had to go to Turkey because managers that knew me, managers that knew my friends and family wouldn't touch me. Not because they didn't want to touch me, but the club didn't. The reason why is because whenever that club would play against Chelsea or against John Terry, the club would have to talk about a topic which they didn't want to speak about, racism. And they didn't speak up at the time, so that's happening, I'm not even defending myself. I'm being put in a box where the perception is, he's the bad egg, it's him, it's him. That honestly made me feel like it was me versus football. That article was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 10th of March 2022, from the Voices section, Ukrainian refugees and unstable PPE. Is this UK government nasty or just hopeless? By Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Are they just incompetent or actively malicious? That's the question I keep asking myself. When it comes to the UK government, it is, at times, difficult to know. Some kind of conjoined cluster shambles of both, perhaps? The Home Office's shabby, dilatory, deceitful, heartless, frankly monstrous response to Ukrainian refugees certainly suggests as much. A more potent cocktail of uselessness and viciousness is hard to imagine, as people flee a war only to be confronted with closed offices, conflicting instructions, pointless journeys and a ton of paperwork before joining, or, more likely not, their families in the UK. So far, less than 1,000 have managed to do so. But this is quite normal for Boris Johnson's government. Another week, another catalogue of errors and performative nastiness.
The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, it must be said, has always excelled at the latter. Why change now, I suppose? Even in the face of a humanitarian crisis? Some of the errors are minor and may even be quite funny. Liz Trust, or her social media handler, tweeted about her meeting with the Greek Foreign Secretary, Nikos Denidias. Unfortunately, she got him mixed up with the Greek singer, Nikos Vertis. At least it suggests someone in this government has some interesting culture. Whether the Greek Foreign Secretary was impressed may be another matter. Still, we can all make mistakes, like the purchase of inadequate personal protection equipment for the NHS at the beginning of the pandemic, somewhere in the region of £8.7 billion worth, PPE equipment bought under so-called fast-track lanes where company often with links to Tory ministers were handed contracts after limited checks. The Department of Health admitted this week they are going to have to dispose of unsuitable medical equipment by burning it. How much are they going to burn? Somewhere in the region of 500 plus lorry loads a month, all in a bid to get rid of the 5.5 billion pieces of useless PPE. Yes, 5.5 billion. That's a staggering figure, isn't it? The government can say, and they have, that they were in a hurry to purchase protection in the middle of a global health crisis. Even so, that's ineptitude on an epic scale. When it comes to checking the bona fides of Ukrainian refugees, the government claims it has been dutiful and diligent, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment, because of safety concerns. It's just a pity they weren't quite so diligent two years ago when it came to providing adequate protection for the NHS. But then, this is a government stuck in a Brexit mindset when the world has moved on. The British people are horrified by what is happening in, in Ukraine, and want to help. The government at times seems to be merely paying lip service to the idea of compassion. As in so many things, it likes to talk the talk but doesn't seem very interested, or maybe the world should be capable of walking the walk. But then why walk when you can take the government plane? And that article was an opinion piece by Teddy Jameson. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the sports section. Rangers praised for Red Star win, as BT Sports pundits believe they can achieve something special. By sports writer Ewan Payton. Rangers have won foot in the last eight of the Europa League, after last night's stunning 3-0 victory over Red Star Belgrade. James Tavernier, Alfredo Morelos and Leon Balogun grabbed the goals, as Giovanni Van Bronckhorst's side blew away the Serbians at Ibrox. BT Sports pundits Owen Hargreaves and Martin Keown were full of praise for the Scottish champions when reviewing the game, and they admit they are starting to think Rangers could go all the way in the competition. Ex-Bayern Munich and Manchester United ace Hargreaves reflected on their European fairy tale, as Arsenal hero Keown couldn't see why the Rangers can't achieve Europa League glory. Hargreaves said, the fairy tale continues. Ibrox is one of the best places to play football. The fans are right up for it. Virtually everything went their way. Three offside goals, penalty save from McGregor. In a way, it was almost a perfect performance from Rangers. The game was a lot closer than the scoreline suggested, but they've been brilliant in this competition. The second leg is going to be tough, but I think it's a brilliant start. 
Keelan added, they've got an important cup game at the weekend, that's what they'll be looking ahead to. They're three points behind Celtic in the league, so they need to take care of their domestic situation. But why not? When you take out Dortmund in the competition, and when you play at Ibrox like the fans, like that, the fans will certainly believe. And that article is by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the sports section, Rangers star Alfredo Morelos ragdolled me, admits Red Star defender Alexander Dragovic. By Mark Walker, shell-shot Red Star Belgrade stopper Alexander Dragovic admits he was ragdolled by Rangers record-breaking striker Alfredo Morelos. The Colombian star is now the highest-scoring South American in the history of the Europa League and UEFA Cup after his goals saw him overtake countryman Radamel Falcao with only Celtic icon Henrik Larsson and Klaus-Jan Huntelaar ahead of him in the list. Rangers romped to a 3-0 win and experienced Austrian international defender Dragovic, who has 98 caps for his country, admitted Morelos was too hot to handle. The former Bayer Leverkusen star said, We knew Alfredo Morelos was a good striker, and we knew how good he was at hold-up play. The first time I had a tackle with him, he bounced me 5 metres away. He had one chance and took it. I actually thought I did okay against him, but the goal he scored came from a break and it punished us. But Captain Milan Borjan insisted can still turn the tie around, despite the first leg deficit. The Canadian international keeper said, We had chances and didn't take them, but that's football. I hope in front of a full Maracana, we can right the wrongs of this game and still qualify. It just wasn't our day. I remain proud of how we played and the tie is not over. However, Red Star were sharply criticised in their homeland and Serbian TV pundit, former Atletico Madrid and Werder Bremen striker, Radi Bogdanovic, reckons the tie is over. He said, Red Star were unlucky, but defensively they were all over the place. Strahinja Irakovic is nowhere near good enough and they had imposters on that team. Basically, they succumbed to the atmosphere and proved they are not ready for this level of football. They are not mentally strong enough. Cristiano Piccini was on his knees by the end of the game. They lost out in fitness too. And that article was by Mark Walker. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the sports section, Scott Brown in emotional Aberdeen address, a Celtic legend takes time to consider options, by Ewan Payton. Scott Brown has addressed his Aberdeen exit in an emotional social media message. The Celtic legend departed the North East club earlier this week after a mutual termination of his contract. The 36-year-old penned a two-year deal at Putaudry to work as player coach under former boss Stephen Glass. Glass was, of course, sacked earlier this year and was replaced by Jim Goodwin. Burnley has revealed that after speaking to the new manager, it was for the best to part ways. The ex-Scotland captain insists he loved gaining hands-on coaching experience during his time at the Dons, and he will take some time to consider his future while getting in some golf during a well-earned rest. He said on Instagram, Hi all, last season I was given the opportunity by Stephen and the board at Aberdeen Football Club to take the next step in my football career, continuing to play the game that I love whilst gaining hands-on coaching experience.
Unfortunately, the season didn't go as well as we had hoped, and with the managerial change at the club, the opportunity to both play and coach wasn't there anymore. After speaking with Jim and Aberdeen, we decided it would be best for us to part ways. Firstly, I would like to thank Stephen and the board for giving me the opportunity and for the incredible support that you've shown me in the short time I spent at your club. To Alan, Henry and the rest of the backroom staff, I enjoyed working with you and I leave you with my best wishes for the future. To the players, I have seen the character, the hard work and determination that you put in day after day on the training pitch and I hope that it brings you and everyone at the club success in the future. To the fans, I know I was only with you for a short time but thank you for welcoming me to your club and to your city. The support I received from you, everyone, from the terraces meeting you around the city was unbelievable. Thank you. Aberdeen is a huge club and everyone from the board, staff and players are determined to bring you success both on and off the pitch. It has been a whirlwind few days and I'm going to take some, some time to consider my options and relax with my family. I'm sure we'll get a few rounds of golf in as well. Thank you and until we meet again. And that was an article by Ewan Payton. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 11th of March 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Will anyone really miss Neighbours now that it's ending? By Catriona Stewart. Once during a proper old-fashioned newspaper bollocking, an editor hit me with the twin takedowns of This is bizarre, even for you. And who do you think you are? Salvador F. Star, 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 Dali. If I hadn't been so timid and abashed, I might have pointed out that Dali was a painter. As it was, I said nothing. But those lines have stayed with me as a response that pops into my head every time someone takes something too far. I suppose it's my own personal version of jumping the shark. The phrase coined after the scriptwriters in Happy Days saw fit to have Fonzie hop over a shark while on water skis. The scriptwriters of Neighbours channel Salvador F star 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 Dali on the regular but the most bizarre plotline, and there are so many to choose from, that haunts the nether regions of my brain involves dear old Harold Bishop. In my memory, and that is really the only place that counts, Harold was washed from a rock and many years later, and after many tears from his darling wife Madge, turned up in New Zealand, having forgotten everything about his former life other than the ability to play the tuba. While Madge believed her beloved to be drowned, he was in fact part of a Salvation Army band further down the Antipodes. According to my memory of the situation, and we're going back to 1996 here, so don't quote me, Harold was picked up at sea by a Vietnamese fishing trawler. It's quite likely I've entirely misremembered it, but I refuse to Google the plotline in case it turns out to be far blander than my affections give it credit for. At the time, I think it seemed quite plausible. As someone just in the cusp of their teenage years, with no body of water vaster than Coatbridge Municipal Baths to test the theory, who was I to dispute the notion that an unathletic middle-aged man caught unexpectedly by a tremendous wave might recover himself enough to bob at sea until such times as a rescue boat happened by? New Zealand couldn't be far, I thought. Now with the wisdom of adulthood, I know it's four hours by plane and, in reality, when Harold Bishop went into the ocean, my aforementioned editor would have had one word and one word only for him. Energising stuff though, all the same. It was always astonishing that the writers could come up with such elaborate japes, yet the coffee shop was called Coffee Shop. I'm going to miss neighbours, and I say that as someone who, as I imagine many of you similarly have not, 
has not watched the show in years. It wasn't actually necessary to engage with it. It was just nice to know that it was still out there somewhere, trying to be spunky, brackets, don't ask, close brackets, and fresh. It's been around for as long as I have, and I remember it fondly as being one of very, very few television programmes I was allowed to watch. In Australia, that was emphatically due to lack of choice. The television stations only ran for a limited number of hours a day, so you had to grab what you could. In Scotland, I was allowed Neighbours and Blue Peter. Home and away was too racy for my young eyes. Imagine because they spent a significant time in their bathers. No such luck in landlocked suburban Erinsborough. Even the wildest plot lines were so gentle and comforting. Dramatic tensions always resolved and even when Madge died in Harold's arms, brackets, spoilers, sorry, close brackets, you knew he'd recover. As vividly as Harold being swept away, I remember Guy Pearce dramatically shaving his head. No wonder his character's girlfriend was killed in a car crash and his mother survived a plane crash. It all takes a toll. It's mind-boggling that he's become a serious actor. Guy Pearce and Jesse Spencer will always be from neighbours no matter how stellar their careers. About ten years ago my flatmates and I, after an ill-fated road trip from Sydney to Melbourne, went to visit the set. What a wheeze. There you were able to wander into coffee shop, roll a tyre around grease monkeys and wait at the errands for a bus stop, though whether you were waiting for a bus into town or making an escape was not clear. We were desperate to see one of the cast members but no such luck. I did see Carol Kennedy in Walkabout in Glasgow once when he toured with his band, but that was nowhere near as exciting as the possibility of seeing a character in their natural environment. I'm ashamed to say how recently I gave up on Neighbours. It's not long enough ago to be intellectually excusable, but not so recent that I would sign a petition to keep it. It's ironic, after Boris Johnson holding up a packet of Tim Tams and declaring a special relationship with Australia, that the loss of British money is what has finally done for the show. No dramatic plot lines here, just a plain and brutal lack of funds. What will we lose by the demise of neighbours? Another heft of childhood nostalgia? That's the really tough bit. Real life is so unpredictable that having lifelong constants is a true salve. Still, if we've learned anything from soap opera, it's that a return is always possible, even from the dead. In my heart, neighbours will be living the fine life in Bali, waiting for a twist of fate to lead it back to the dry land of solvency in our TVs. By Catriona Stewart. The Herald, Monday the 14th of March 2022. News. SNP warned over legality of giving Calmac Ferries contract to Turkey. This article is by Martin Williams. Questions have been raised about the legality of awarding key lifeline ferry contracts to Turkey after ministers failed to detail any Scottish community benefits from sending the work overseas. The Turkish shipyard Kemre Marin Industri has been announced as the preferred bidder for the £105 million order against three other yards, which will increase vehicle and freight capacity by nearly 40%. The move has already been described as an embarrassment for the SNP by the Scottish Conservatives. But there is new concern that neither Scottish Government-controlled Caledonian Maritime Assets Limited, CMAL, which owns the nation's ageing ferry fleet, nor the Scottish Government has outlined what the community benefits are from giving the work to Turkey. Alaba Party Deputy Kenny McCaskill has said that CMAL must now be scrapped. Ministers have previously been warned that they may have acted unlawfully by failing to give nationalised shipbuilder Ferguson Marine 
are looking for a £100 million contract to create two new lifeline ferries to serve Islay. The Turkish Yard won in front of four overseas companies to bid for the contract to build the two vessels and excluded the Inverclyde shipbuilder. The groundbreaking e-procurement reform Scotland Act 2014, when it was brought, was seen by many as a welcome move away from contracts awarded only on the basis of the lowest price towards those which offer the best long-term outcomes for Scotland's communities and the environment. Public contracts valued at £4 million or above have specific requirements in relation to community benefits in the authority area that a contract is issued. These should include training and recruitment, the availability of subcontracting opportunities and that it is intended to improve the economic, social or environmental well-being of the area. If no community benefits are sought in a contract, a statement must be published on justifying the decision. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes stated that in line with the Procurement Reform Scotland Act 2014, bidders for the ILA procurement process were required to detail the community benefits they are able to offer within their response to the invitation to tender. Submissions from the four yards were being evaluated, including the responses to the community benefits section included within the original contract notice. A letter from Ms Forbes to Chris McElhenney, an Inverclyde councillor and general secretary of Alex Salmon's Alaba party, said, A recommendation on the preferred yard for the detailed design, construction, testing, survey, equipping, completion and delivery of the Roprax ferries, including their commitments to community benefits, is expected by the end of February 2022, with a decision on whether to proceed with the contract expected by the end of March. Both Transport Scotland and CMAL have so far failed to outline what community benefits there are from the contract award. Mr McElhenney said the Scottish Government gave me written guarantees that there would be community benefits resulting from this contract, yet in the release celebrating sending Scottish work to Turkey, not a single benefit is listed. He said the move was a betrayal to Clyde shipyard workers and that secrecy over whether there are any community benefits will deliver is a kick in the teeth to communities desperate for economic intervention. He said that publicly owned Ferguson was previously excluded from bidding to build ferries that are owned by the Scottish Government and operated on behalf of the Scottish Government was outrageous. To now announce they will be built in Turkey without listing what the benefits will be to our local communities is a complete betrayal of the people that live and work here. It is a legal requirement to set out what the community benefits are. To award this contract without any community benefits would be unlawful. Perhaps the government minister never mentioned the benefits this contract would bring because Ms Gilroth knows how embarrassing it would be to pretend that ships built in Turkey will provide economic, employment or training opportunities to people in Inverclyde. I will be asking the government to urgently confirm the details of this award and to again remind them that if they don't start directly awarding contracts to Scottish Yards instead of sending work abroad, then they will be effectively shutting down shipbuilding on the Clyde, no differently than from how Thatcher's Tories did in the 1980s.
Ferguson Marine, which runs the last remaining shipyard on the Lower Clyde, was nationalised after it financially collapsed in August 2019, amid soaring costs and delays to the construction of two Lifeline Island ferries. It came five years after tycoon Jim McCall first rescued the yard when it went bust. The delivery of New Island ferries MV Glenisarach and Hull 802, which were due online in the first half of 2018, was found to be between four and five years late, with costs doubling to over £200 million. Earlier this year, it emerged that the completion of the long overdue ferries had been delayed again. The Isley route is already one of the busiest services for freight on the Clyde and Hebrides network, and CMAL says that the incoming ferries will support the island's vital economic activity. The four shortlisted shipyards were to submit their technical and commercial proposals for the design and construction of the two vessels. The successful initial bids were from Damon Shipyard in Romania, Remontawa Shipbuilding in Poland and two Turkish shipyards. It was confirmed Ferguson Marine embarked in a bid for the contract through the initial pre-qualification questionnaire process, but failed to make the shortlist. Mr McCaskill said, We already knew that a kick in the teeth was coming after Ferguson's shipyard in Port Glasgow was excluded from even bidding for this lucrative contract. Over £100 million of procurement invested in Inverclyde would have supported hundreds of jobs and provided the foundation to start rebuilding a bright long-term future for the yard. Instead, Scottish public funds will be propping up jobs in Turkey. This must act as the final message for the Scottish Government to wake up and scrap CMAL. CMAL and Transport Scotland were both asked what the community benefits were but did not respond. Transport Scotland said in a prepared statement, CMAL is bound by the requirement to openly tender for these works and undertook the procurement in line with all legal requirements, attracting 11 bids from shipyards around the world. Ferguson Marine Port Glasgow and another UK yard did submit bids, but did not meet the initial criteria to be considered at the second stage. While it is disappointing that Ferguson Marine was unsuccessful on this occasion, we are fully committed to supporting the yard to secure a suitable future, including a pipeline of future work to help protect jobs and commercial shipbuilding on the Clyde. The Scottish Government stands firm on its commitment to the vessels, the workforce and the yard at Ferguson. It is no secret that the need for additional tonnage for the Sea Mal fleet is extremely pressing, and it is important that we now focus on bringing these two new vessels into service as quickly as possible. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Monday the 14th of March 2022. News. Thousands of NHS staff in Scotland off work for months with COVID. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Thousands of NHS staff in Scotland have been absent for work for two months or more due to COVID, figures show, as the government pledged to maintain a full pay arrangement. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, which employs 38,000 staff, said 1,106 had experienced one episode of sickness longer than eight weeks over the course of the pandemic. Lothian recorded a much lower rate proportionately with 191 employees out of 22,000 off for two months or longer. 
in March 2020, the Scottish Government advised that employees forced to take time off due to COVID would be recorded under special leave and receive full pay. A government spokesman said it has no plans to change the current provision. Agency nurses are not covered by the arrangements. It comes amid warnings that waning immunity amongst older people may be contributing to a sharp rise in COVID hospital admissions. One in 18 people in private households in Scotland are estimated to have had the virus in the week to March 5th, or 299,900 people. NHS Lanarkshire said it was facing ongoing and significant staffing challenges due to COVID absences. At least 2,831 NHS staff have been off work for more than two months across Scotland, according to figures obtained by the Herald through Freedom of Information laws. NHS Grampian said 731 staff had been recorded as having a COVID-related absence lasting for more than two months, while the figure was 191 in NHS Lothian. NHS Fife would not disclose how many staff had been absent for longer than two months. The board said a total of 374 employees had been absent for COVID-19 related reasons. Lanarkshire said 32 staff were recorded as absent for two months or more as of January the 31st, but did not provide a total figure. MPs have called on the UK government to recognise long COVID as an occupational disease, saying the move would help standardise support and care for those affected and improve data collection on the problem across the country. NHS staff in Scotland who are absent with another illness, including cancer, are entitled to between one month and a maximum of six months full pay. Dr Patricia Moultrie, Deputy Chair of BMA Scotland, said COVID was a new virus with unknown side effects and as such long COVID was a special case. She added, we would expect GPs and practice staff to be covered similarly. A Unison spokesman said there was recognition that at some point the government would review the pay arrangements for COVID. He said Unison recognises that COVID was a unique, fast-moving and complex situation and so we welcome the Scottish Government's commitment to continue in the application of paid leave for staff who most probably caught COVID in the course of their work for the NHS. We recognise that as we have learned more about this virus, as it appears to have become less deadly and as measures such as the vaccine programme have rolled out, the government may now want to review the pay arrangements. We would hope that in doing so, they continue to acknowledge the hard work of staff and the fact that we still have a lot to learn about COVID and particularly how people recover from long COVID. In Ayrshire and Darren, 175 employees have had sustained periods of leave after becoming infected with COVID, with 155 staff affected in Teesside. NHS Dumfries and Galloway said 324 employees were off for 60 days or more up until the 31st of January. NHS Forth Valley recorded 85 staff as having been absent for two months or more, with five in NHS Highland, 18 in Borders and five in the Western Isles. Shetland said no staff had been off work for more than two months with COVID. The Royal College of Nurses has expressed concern that many agency workers providing services to the NHS 
were only receiving statutory sick pay for COVID sickness. Colin Pullman, RCN Scotland's Interim Director, said, We would like to see employment agencies ensuring that agency workers do not suffer any financial detriment if they are unable to work shifts because of COVID. There has also been concern that care workers were being forced to take holidays because employers were only offering statutory pay when ill with COVID or self-isolating. This contravenes government policy that they should be paid in full to limit infection spread. Analysis by the TUC found the UK has the least generous statutory sick pay in Europe, worth just £96.35 per week, and it is only available to employees earning £120 per week or more, meaning 2 million workers, mostly women, do not qualify. TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady said, COVID has shown us just how important sick pay is for individual workers, for vital services and for the whole economy. But there are still 2 million low-paid workers who are excluded from statutory sick pay, while those who qualify only get a pittance that is impossible to live on. The UK government must make sure every worker can get statutory sick pay paid from the first day of illness and increase its value to at least as much as the real living wage. Real Workers Union, the RMT, said members who required time off due to COVID were entitled to receive full pay for six months. This article is by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 14th of March 2022, from the sports section... Dundee nil, Rangers 3. Aaron Ramsey returns as Giovanni Van Bronckhurst's men secure Scottish Cup semi-final spot. By Matthew Lindsay. So much for Rangers' continued involvement in the Europa League having a negative impact on their ongoing efforts to lift silverware in Scotland. The Ibrox Club have had something of a Jekyll and Hyde season. They have been immense in continental competition and wildly erratic domestically but there was no scares against Dundee at Dens Park this afternoon. An early Connor Goldston goal, a first half James Tiffany penalty and a late Fashion Sakala strike secured a one-sided Scottish Cup quarter-final victory and a place in the last four for the first time in four years. The assured all-round display and comfortable win will give Rangers, who showed no signs of fatigue after their exertions against Red Star Belgrade, in the first leg of their last 16 doubleheader on Thursday night and their followers' confidence they can avoid any more slip-ups during the run-in. The Scottish champions' form after big European games in the 2021-22 campaign has been, has been far from impressive. They have lost and been hailed to draws in the Cinch Premiership in the immediate aftermath of encounters with Malmo, Lyon and Borussia Dortmund. If they had fared better against Dundee United away and Motherwell at home this term, they might be five points clear of Celtic at the top of the table with eight games to play, instead of three behind. So it was little wonder that many among their fan base viewed their trip to Tayside with a sense of trepidation today, despite their opponents being rooted to the bottom spot in the top flight and fighting for their survival. Tavernier and his teammates had been superb against Red Star and Govan, and had deservedly triumphed 3-0 to give themselves a great chance of going through to the quarter-finals. But they certainly put everything into the 90 minutes. 
Could the visitor avoid a dip in performance levels and another painful early cup exit? Giovanni van Bronckhurst fishing things up in an attempt to ensure Rangers were at their very best. Aaron Ramsey made his first start since the Annan match at Galbank in the previous round last month and his first appearance in coming on in the triumphal for Dortmund in Germany three weeks ago. Elsewhere, Joe McLaughlin, Philip Hollander and James Sands all came in as Alan McGregor, Leon Balligan, Joe Rebo and John Lundstrom dropped out. The latter two picked up knocks in midweek and were missing from the squad. Mark McGee, the Dundee manager who tested positive for Covid this week and was isolating at home, was also absent and his assistant Simon Rusk oversaw proceedings from the dugout. Charlie Adam, who had a hamstring strain, and the cup-tied Zach Rudden were major losses for the hosts. There were three changes from the team that slumped to a painful 1-0 loss to St Mirren on Wednesday night. Lee Ashcroft replaced Zebel Ibsen Rossi in defence, while Paul McGowan and Danny Mullen took over from Declan McKay-Dade and Luke McCowan. It took just eight minutes for Rangers to edge in front. Ashcroft did well to handle a header off his line, off the underside of the crossbar, with an overhead kick. But the ball fell to Conor Golson, and the centre-half gave Harry Sharp no chance with his thunderous drive. Ashcroft very nearly levelled a Neil McGinn free kick in the 21st minute, when he nodded just wide of the left post. But McLaughlin had a quiet afternoon, I was never in serious danger of conceding thereafter. Morelos and Ramsey both went close before referee Stephen McLean, much to the annoyance of the Dundee players, gave Rangers a penalty for a foul on a Ryan Sweeney by Ryan Sweeney on Tavernier. It looked like a soft award, but the right back coolly converted his ninth spot kick of the season to take his tally for this term to 12. Dundee's slim hopes of clawing their way back into the game suffered a setback when Ashcroft pulled his hamstring. The defender was replaced by Vontae Daly-Campbell, the Leicester City loanee, just before half-time. Van Bronckhorst put on Kima Roof and Fashion Sakala for Morelos and Glenn Kamara at the start of the second half. Sakala forced a fine reaction from Sharp, Ramsey had an attempt blocked by Sweeney and Roof went close. Ramsey's lack of game time at Rangers since joining from Juventus on loan on the final day of the January transfer window has been a source of frustration to their followers and much hilarity among supporters of their rivals. The Welsh midfielder took over from Maribo on the right of the three-quarter line in the 4-2-3-1 that Van Brokhurst persevered with. He got a powerful shot on target early on, was involved in the build-up to the penalty and had an attempt cleared off the line. Getting back out in the park was another step in the right direction for the 31-year-old. He showed glimpses of his undoubted quality when he got on the ball. He will be hopeful of contributing much more going forward. Ahmad Diallo, the Manchester United lonely who had not featured since the draw with United at Tanadice last month, came on for Kent for the closing stages and had a goal chalked off for offside. Charlie McCann then took over from Ramsey and Ryan Jack made way for Alex Lowry. Van Brunkers would have been pleased to give Diallo, Ramsey, Ruth and McCann a taste of competitive action 
given the big matches Rangers have coming up at home and abroad in the weeks ahead. So Carlos slotted home with three minutes remaining to add the finishing touch to a hugely satisfying, satisfying afternoon for the, for the Dutchman. And that match report was by Matthew Lindsay. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 14th of March 2022, from the sports section. Rangers star Alfredo Morelos has boosted transfer value again, reckons Chris Commons, as told to Ewan Payton. Rangers star Alfredo Morelos has firmly put himself back on the shop window with his recent impressive performances. That's according to former Celtic attacker Chris Commons. The ex-Scotland star reckons the Colombian has recovered his transfer value of late, particularly with his goals in the Europa League. That said, Commons doesn't think a new contract at Ibrox for their star striker can be ruled out, with just over a year left on his current deal. While the player deserves plenty of praise for his form, Commons also pointed to the Jers coaching staff for their part in his upturn in performances. He wrote in the Daily Mail, When you look at the transformation in Morelos, some things are obvious. He is playing much higher up the pitch now as a genuine number 9, rather than a deeper role he played under Gerrard. He also looks much fitter and more focused than the player who had appeared so disillusioned and disinterested towards the end of the Gerrard reign. But some things are perhaps more difficult to see. I just wonder what the effect Van Van Bronckhurst and, perhaps more tellingly, Roy Mackay have had behind the scenes. They say that football is a universal language, but clear communication is key. Van Bronckhurst and Mackay both speak fluent Spanish something which is bound to be a big help to Morelos. Van Brunkhurst spent four years at Barcelona, whilst Mackay was a goal-scoring machine at Deport of La Carina before getting his big move to Bayern Munich. Particularly in the case of Mackay, I think his influence on Morelos has been massive. Morelos is now under the guidance of a man who is among the very best strikers in the business. He is now playing as a proper penalty box poacher, whilst retaining all of the link-up play he had developed in Gerrard's system. Mackay knows what it's like to score big goals in Europe. He still holds the record for the fastest ever Champions League goal scored, after just 10 seconds for Bayern Munich against Real Madrid. On his day, he is one of the most lethal strikers in Europe. If he is imparting some of that wisdom and experience onto Morelos, then Rangers can only benefit. Morelos was an animal against Red Star. After doing what he did to Dortmund and Hummels, it was so impressive to see him back it up with another big performance. Sustaining that form from now on until the end of the season will obviously be key to Rangers' title chances. Even with just a year left in his contract, he could attract a big money bid from abroad or down south in the summer. Not quite in the same region as what Celtic got from Mr Dembele and Kieran Tierney but maybe somewhere around the 10 to £15 million bracket. With just 12 months to go on his contract last summer, Odson Edward was in the same position and Celtic sold him for £14 million. That's the sort of money Rangers could be looking at if Morelos maintains this form, which is a hell of a lot more than it looked like they would get for him just a few months ago. There's no doubt he has put himself firmly back into the shop window with some of his recent performances. And that article was written by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 14th of March 2022, 
from the sports section. Shane Lowry produces pretty cool hole-in-one at Sawgrass. This article is unattributed. Shane Lowry lit up the weather-affected players' championship with a hole-in-one in the iconic 17th as Paul Casey continued his superb comeback from a nightmare start at Sawgrass. Lowry's tee shot in the 124-yard par 3 pitched around 10 feet beyond the hole and spun back into the cup to spark wild celebrations from the 34-year-old Irishman. The eagle lifted Lowry, who's also made an ace in the 16th Augusta National during the Masters, the four under par, and although he bogeyed the difficult 18th, birdies in the first and second keep him firmly in contention for the title. Lowry said, You play this game, just special things happen sometimes. It's pretty cool to do it there, one of the most iconic holes in golf. Yeah, what can I say? It was a special thing to happen, and I'm not looking forward to turning on my phone and seeing the messages I've got. Not only that, it put me back in the tournament somewhat. So it was amazing. At 5 under par, when play was halted due to darkness, Lowry had four holes of his third round to complete, and was four shorts off the lead, held by India's Anirban Larry, who had seven holes remaining. Americans Tom Hodge and Harold Varner were a short behind Larry, with Casey another stroke back alongside Sebastian Munoz and Sam Barnes. Casey made a triple bogey seven on his first hole of the £15.2 million event on Thursday, but fought back to card an open 70 and added a bogey 369 on Sunday, which included a birdie from 50 feet in the par 317th. I don't know if I've ever had two full days off at a tournament, Casey said in reference to the bad weather, which meant some players who teed off early on Thursday did not play again until Sunday. It's been weird. It started with a triple bogey on Thursday to start my championship, but I ground out two under, which I was immensely happy with, especially as I knew there was going to be a delay of some sort. I know I got the lucky side of the draw. I'm very aware of that. And it's been interesting watching the guys battle on the other side. I mean, I believe in the golfing gods and karma, so I don't sit there gleefully watching it. Then today I made a lot of putts. That's been the key, really. Even my ball striking hasn't been up to my usual sort of standard. But then dropping the long one in 17 was very, very cool. Casey's Ryder Cup teammate, Tommy Fleetwood, added a 73 to his opening 66 and remained 5 under par after 9 holes of his third round. It's just been odd, Fleetwood said. I've never been part of a tournament that's had delays like this and it's just strange how long the week feels and it's actually not been that long. You're still just in a regular tournament day here. We're still in a Sunday. It just feels like it's been longer. But it's been nice to have the family here. I think they've definitely made a massive difference, rather than waiting around on your own and not having much to do. The halfway cut had fallen at 2 over par, allowing 2019 champion Rory McIlroy to scrape into the last 36 holes following consecutive rounds of 73. McIlroy converted his first 9 holes of round 3 in 1 over to remain near the bottom of the leaderboard. And that was an unattributed article from the Herald Scotland. The Herald, Tuesday the 15th of March 2022, News. 
Skills Shortages in Scotland flagged an Institute of Directors survey. This article is by Ian McConnell. Nearly half of Scottish business leaders have highlighted skills shortages in their workforces in a survey published today. The report from the Institute of Directors in Scotland also shows 79% of respondents believe the primary role of the Scottish Government is to ensure the efficient delivery of public services, ensuring a skilled workforce and effective regulation of the market. Around 44% of directors in Scotland do not believe they have the right number of skilled people for the current jobs in their organisations, according to IOD Scotland's State of the Nation survey. And 35% of respondents do not feel confident they can recruit people with the right skills this year. IOD Scotland believes this finding has reinforced a clear need for rapid professional development and training. Most directors surveyed agreed they are reasonably taxed. Around 65% believe that their business taxes are fair. Meanwhile, 58% of respondents consider their personal tax rate is fair. And 53% of those asked think local taxation is fair. Louise MacDonald, National Director of IOD Scotland, said the past two years have been a turbulent time for directors in every type of business and organisation. These findings provide valuable insight into an important time when organisations and their directors are seeking to recover from the pandemic's grasp. She added, while leaders take an optimistic view of the future, we need to take their concern about the challenges around a skills gap seriously. We must particularly consider support for those directors who don't believe they will be able to recruit the right skills in 2022, And all these findings will inform our ongoing work as we support directors and communities across Scotland. Around 83% of directors say investment in professional development remains very important for them personally. And 78% say it remains very important for their employees. This article is by Ian McConnell. Reported from the Herald on the 15th of March 2022 from the Sports Section, Matt O'Reilly rewarded for Celtic form with international Denmark call-up by Aidan Smith. Matt O'Reilly has been rewarded for his top Celtic form with an international call-up for Denmark. The ex-MK Donster is eligible to play for England, Norway and Denmark. However, O'Reilly insists he very much has the Danes on his mind when he considers a call-up to the international scene, with the World Cup coming up at the end of 2022 in Qatar. The 21-year-old signed for Celtic in the January transfer window. He's been an instant success with Ange Postacoglu unearthing what appears to be another gem. Speaking about his hopes for a Danish call-up, O'Reilly said previously, I've had thoughts about the World Cup, I won't lie. It is definitely one of my biggest targets, I'd say. I feel like it's possible now. I'm playing for a club such as Celtic now, and I don't think that is out of the question. There's still a long way to to go for me to be able to get a call-up of that magnitude, so we'll see. Regarding picking a nation, it is still really early as I haven't actually played for Denmark yet. I played for England youth teams but at the same time I do feel quite Danish. My mum is Danish and I can speak a decent amount and I can understand a very good amount. In that sense I don't think it's out of the question at all. If I did get a call up from Denmark I don't think I'd be saying no. Christian Eriksen has also been named in the Denmark squad for this month's international friendlies nine months after suffering a cardiac arrest during Euro 2020. 
The 30-year-old was gone for five minutes after his heart stopped during Denmark's clash with Finland last June, but was resuscitated and an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD, was fitted, allowing him to continue his career. He signed for Brentford in January and has since played three times, making back-to-back 90-minute appearances and bagging an assist in Saturday's win over Burnley. That has been enough for head coach Kasper Julemund to bring him straight back into the squad for matches against Holland on March 26th and Serbia three days later. It is sure to be an emotional return for the playmaker, whose side went on to reach the semi-finals of Euro 2020. The match against Serbia will be Eriksson's first return to Parkin, where the incident happened in a group game against Finland. That article was by Aidan Smith. Recorded from the Herald on the 15th of March 2022, from the sports section, Scotland manager Steve Clark explains Ryan Fraser's squad omission by Ewan Payton. Steve Clark has revealed why he opted to leave Newcastle attacker Ryan Fraser out of his latest Scotland squad. The national team manager named his squad for friendlies against Poland and Austria or Wales on Tuesday afternoon. The 28-year-old has been on impressive form recently for Eddie Howe's side as they began to claim to climb the Premier League table. Fraser pulled out of the last international squad for two games back in November. He since apologised for that. But he won't be included in the next two either as Clark decided to leave him out of his pool. Clark said, I had a chat with Ryan. There's a situation in November when Ryan didn't come with the squad but trained with his club. Ryan has apologised for that situation. I've had a good chat with him but I've decided not to pick him in this camp. We've agreed that Ryan's club form will determine whether he's involved in the next camps. Basically, it's down to Ryan on how he performs for his club. He's done well recently. I've watched him live and I've seen him. I had a conversation with Ryan and we were both in agreement that this is the right way forward. That article was by Ewan Payton. Herald Scotland on Tuesday the 15th of March. Opinion. Is the UK willing to pay the cost of restoring peace in Europe? An article written by Andrew Dunlop columnist. The Ukraine war isn't turning out as expected, certainly not as President Vladimir Putin expected. Heads are rolling in Russian high command. The quick-fire blitzkrieg to occupy Kiev and topple the Zelensky government has been bogged down, literally, in the Rasputitsa, the same muddy road conditions Napoleon and Hitler encountered during ill-fated Russian campaigns. Putin is paying for the hubris of launching an offensive during the mud season, A convoy north of Kiev was held up, causing flat batteries, empty fuel tanks and perished tyres. Russian heavy armour is being picked off by more lightly armed and fleet of foot Ukrainian defenders. The anticipated Russian control of the skies has yet to materialise because of the Ukrainian armed forces' effectiveness, UK and NATO-supplied portable air defence missiles and the invaders' unreliable command and control systems. The Russians have overwhelming advantage in manpower and weapons – They'll continue to struggle to make it count if their forces can't communicate properly with each other or overextended supply lines seize up. There's also one fight the Ukrainians are winning hands down, the PR battle. This is the first real Twitter war. President Zelensky and his compatriots demonstrate a genius for communicating directly with millions around the world, winning their support and rallying their own population. They're making sure the horrific pictures of Mariupol's bombed-out maternity hospital are seen across the globe. Yet even in these darkest days, they're also projecting an indelible image of a spirited nation, which refuses to be cowed. New footage emerges daily of captured Russian tanks and rocket launchers being towed away by massive don't-mess-with-me tractors. 
Ukraine now has the best armed farmers in the world. Napoleon's dictum was in war, morale forces are to physical as three to one. That's why Putin has been unable to roll over Ukraine. And it's why, sadly, he's regrouped and is intensifying the assault. He's ordering even more despicable atrocities to terrify the civilian population in an attempt to break its will to resist. So we can't count on Putin's threat to Ukraine, and by extension to the West, dissipating any time soon. This desperate situation presents NATO leaders with agonising choices. How best to help protect the Ukrainian people without triggering a wider, more unpredictably dangerous conflict between nuclear-armed states? In this war, we've all become armchair generals, even improbably Nicola Sturgeon, slipping fluently into the lingo of no-fly zones and the like. There is, however, a yawning gap between commenting from the sidelines and taking responsibility for life-and-death decisions. The Ukrainians are paying for Putin's war with a loss of their homes, livelihoods and ultimately their lives. The British people are united in standing with Ukraine in its hour of need. But what cost are we prepared to pay to do so? There can be no doubting our country's humanity and generosity. The donations to fund humanitarian aid bear testimony to that. But what priorities shall be attached to European defence in the years ahead? Defence is rarely a topic that exercises voters at election time. The last general election in which it played a significant part was 1987. The then Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, famously suggested his preferred method for countering Soviet aggression was guerrilla warfare, rather than with the protection of the UK's nuclear deterrent. It was not a winning argument. In the mid-1980s, defence spending was over 5% of gross domestic product. The Cold War's ending enabled the UK, Europe's leading contributor to NATO, to realise a significant peace dividend. By 2016, UK defence spending had fallen for the first time below NATO's 2% of GDP target. The Johnson government's 2020 Integrated Security and Defence Review reversed the decline, projecting for four years real rises in the defence budget. Spending now stands at over 2.2% of GDP. Is it enough? Read General Sir Richard Sheriff's novel War with Russia and you might conclude it's not. Sir Richard's book is a work of fiction, but its synopsis is anything but far-fetched. Russian territorial gains in Ukraine, destabilisation and then occupation of the Baltic states, triggering a direct confrontation with NATO. Sir Richard's work draws on scenarios actually wargamed by NATO when he was Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. The book's recurring theme is that for deterrence to work, threats must be matched at every level by credible and flexible military responses, whether conventional or nuclear. On his analysis, the UK's conventional forces had become unbalanced by 2016, with the funding for two aircraft carriers squeezing out other investment, particularly in the army. The military value of our contribution to NATO's forward defence in Europe needed strengthening to contain and defeat Putin's aggressive intent and higher-risk appetite. The British Army will comprise just 72,000 regulars by 2025, the smallest since 1714. The most recent Defence Review assumes fewer numbers are offset by greater technological capability, yet only a year ago a Commons Defence Committee report concluded the Army's armoured vehicle capability was obsolescent and likely to be outgunned by a Russian adversary. Next week, Chancellor Rishi Sunak will deliver his spring statement. His task was already daunting. Finances ravaged by Covid are in need of repair. A cost-of-living crunch hitting family budgets has to be tackled. 
and now the economic consequences of sanctions and a European war must be factored into the forecasts. Teetotal Mr Sunak could be forgiven if he opted for a stiff Macallan as his dispatch box tipple. Despite the economic challenges, one of the first adjustments the Chancellor should make to last autumn's spending plans is a defence budget increase. The Germans have already announced their intention to do so. There could be no clearer demonstration to Putin of our resolve and his miscalculation. The UK's prosperity depends on Europe's security. On the 24th of February, the world changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our assumptions and priorities now need to change too. An article written by Andrew Dunlop. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.